Hey everyone, yeah, this is Brandon. I'm just doing a live stream today, just testing out the uh, the new setup. Uh, hopefully you guys are liking it. Today I'm going to have uh, Neil on the live stream on my podcast. We're going to talk about a little bit about cybersecurity, what's going on in the industry, and kind of what we're working on. So this is going to be a really exciting podcast. Uh, it's been a while since I've been you know doing it. I wanted to kind of set up a new setup and get going and give more value and be interactive with you guys so you guys can see exactly what I'm doing in real time and have some conversations in real time. So uh, this grab a coffee, grab a tea. Let, let's kind of get at it and let's hack at it. I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, USADO. USADO is a Canadian-based cybersecurity company that provides 24-7 cybersecurity support and compliance service that align their customers' tolerance for risk, their clients, suppliers, and government contractual mandates. USADO's teams focus on using insights to drive business decisions. There's no need to leave strategies to chance when insights can be used to show what changes need to be made and how to make them. USADO offers multiple services to help companies simplify IT, centralize cybersecurity management, and meet compliance standards. USADO can customize their service to work with your existing IT network and programs. For more information, contact USADO at info at uzado.com or visit their website at www.uzado.com. Hey, Neil, how's it going? Good, Brandon. How you doing? Thanks for having me on the stream. Not bad, not bad. How, how's it going? How's the weekend? It's it's great, man. I mean, it's 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 cooling off here in Chicago, which you know typically is is a bad thing, but at least it's not ninety degrees outside. So enjoyed some some non nerd outside time, you know, over the weekend. How about you? You know what? Actually, this morning I went for uh, every Sunday. My wife and myself go to uh, Centennial Park and we run the hills or walk the hills. And we do that kind of get out just because of what we find is, you know, and like you're probably finding most of the day is sitting, right? Monday to Friday, you're on your desk, you're doing Zoom calls, go to the meeting, you're doing all that. And then you got to get moving, right? You got to kind of get up and going. So yeah, on the weekends, I try to go out with my wife and do some exciting things. Uh, right now, it's just kind of testing the pods, uh, the podcast and the new live stream. But now it's trying to get more active and, you know, <laughs> not sit as much. Well, and, and it's funny you mentioned that, right? Because I, I think, I don't think most of us, and, and I don't know about you, I, I did a ton of remote work prior to COVID, right? And a ton of traveling. My wife works at PwC, and, and so she does a ton of traveling. And so we're used to being working remotely in the sense of like being all over the globe, you know, not being at home, the, the world being our office. And so when like COVID hit and, and we're working from home, we're we did it didn't occur to us that we needed to change anything because we just thought like oh well we've been working remotely the entire time it wasn't that big of a deal and then probably two or three months into covid it was like oh wow this is vastly different than our globe trotting that we would normally do right like like it's vastly different to, to wake up go downstairs sit in the office work literally 12 14 hour days and then go to bed right sort of thing and, and so like it's been I've talked to a lot of people, and 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 the the, the shift in mentality is just so incredibly different. It, it hasn't been till for the last thirty days, thirty four five days that we've said, okay, we've got to get outside more, and we've got to actually like not necessarily socialize, but just like walk around the 
you know, walk around the subdivision, go for bike rides, you know, go out and, and try to see see that the rest of the world still exists outside the, you know, the four walls of this house. And I think that's kind of crazy because I, I think more and more people, and I'm hearing this as I'm doing my calls, I'm talking to all levels of, you know, senior executives, C-suite, all the way to VPs and IT and security professionals, is that the amount we're sitting now, it's because you get up in the morning now, you go into your, whatever your office is at home, and then you're sitting there all day, right? You're on either calls, you're on meetings, you're on group meetings, whatever, and you're just sitting all day. And then because, you know, before there used to be water cooler talk, right? You kind of get up from your office, you go walk, you get a drink, you talk to people on the way, you know, over to, you know, maybe to the the fridge or whatever you can grab me a coffee but now you don't it's every everyone's sitting at home you have to you have to learn how to do water cooler talk over like teams and skype and hangouts and, and everything that we've got going on because i i don't think people are used to water cool water cooler talk via chat channels and things like that anymore i think that's what's what's driving the the, the change of mentality in that definition of water cooler talk when i think it's all the all the tech guys are are Jumping on this, like the bandwagon. Oh yeah, we get to play with more technology, but it's just kind of like your average person, right? That doesn't really kind of play much with technology, right? Doesn't on streams and chat and all that. They're now trying to have to figure this out and which one to go on because one company does team, one teams, one company does Slack, one company does another one. It's just one after another. So which one do I go on? Who am I talking to in this one? Well, let me ask you this. I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but, um, one of the things that I've, that I started to do right when COVID first happened was I would be the one who would initiate turning my camera on for the, the chat. And, and the, the reaction that I got from my coworkers was insane because they were like, Neil, Neil, you've got your camera on. Are you aware that you have your camera on? It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it on purpose. I figure if we're going to social distance, you know, I still want you to see me. I still want to have that personal interaction. And, and so I, I found that, that, you know, to your point, like the non-techies, are very much like, oh my gosh, you mean there's this camera that I can interact with, I, I can talk to an audience, I can like interact with folks, and, and that that mentality is just is, is lost on people. It is, and, I, and I, it's funny, like through the day as I'm doing kind of my, my Zoom, actually mostly go to meeting, and then some Zoom, some Google Hangouts, what happens is, it's it's interesting, like the people that will shut the camera off, right? Now, don't get me wrong. They probably maybe not in a makeup on or, you know, haven't done their hair or just, you know, haven't kind of get the normal work attire. But I'm finding like it's more that don't want to turn the camera than the ones that actually do. And I'm like you. I'm just turning my camera. If I'm wearing a baseball cap and we're just going to talk, you know, let's go. Like, let's talk about what's going on in the cybersecurity industry. But yeah, just kind of like still have that social engagement that it's not like almost like the electronic phone, right? You're yeah. doing that over just because I have a microphone, but doing it over the microphone. I'm actually wanting to see that person, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, just because we're being forced to you know to to not go to the office together doesn't mean I still want, I don't want to see your face. Oh, exactly. So, guys, uh, as you guys are watching this, uh, it doesn't matter if it's on Twitch, YouTube, Facebook. Uh, make a comment in the actual chat where I'm actually watching right now. If you have a question for Neil, you have a question for myself. Um, comment. Let us know what you're thinking about. What's what's what are you doing with the pandemic? What's going on in your world? How's things that for business? You know, are you okay? Is your family healthy? Kind of all the important things, right? We'd love to have just have a quick chat with you and just see how things are going. So Neil, let's first ask you, like, how are you, how are you doing through the pandemic? Um, good, good. I mean, I think, I think outside of everything that we, we just kind of talked about, it's, um, it's, it, it's been, uh, it, it, I think if we look at it not just from the personal side, but but the the way that the cybersecurity industry has changed 
just in the last six to seven months, you know, the, the spike of ransomware, the, the, the companies who have, um, you know, grossly failed to compensate in their, their, their BCP and DR plans, um, you know, watching just the, the, the cyber world around us change, you know, in addition to just even some of the personal challenges that we've, you know, we've all kind of had to endure as part of, uh, as part of COVID. I mean, I'm doing great. Mm -hmm. I, I love, I'm one of these guys that's not, I'm not afraid of change. And so I love to watch the world change around me. Um, you know, and so I just think it's incredibly interesting to see what's really going on. And I love having conversations with people because I think, I think everybody's like shocked when you talk to them, they're like, Oh my God, did you see that? Like, you know, ransomware is up 35% or, you know, like this company got hacked and this company got hacked, this company got hacked. Or I was talking with a friend of mine in the air force and he was talking about um, how the air force couldn't even get their VPN infrastructure up um, to support all these people working remotely. And it's like, when you think about just all of the challenges that every company has had to face, I, I, I can't think of it. I mean, people are over there like, God, I hate 2020 and I can't wait for 2020 to be over. And I'm over here like, God, I can't wait to see what else 2020 has got in store for us. Well, I think the the one thing now you said BCP, just so you guys are watching, I don't know kind of what level of vocabulary you have in the cybersecurity or business world. That's business continuity plan, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. That's your ability to continue to run your business when your normal business operation flows have been disrupted, disrupted in some way. So why is that important right now? Well, because, you know, this should be looked at in the same way that you would look at a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake or something like that. This is a world-changing event that shifts your perspective away from your normal operations, your normal day-to-day, and into something that we we all hope will be temporary. It's turning into be, I think the the cliche term right is the new norm now. Um, but but you know, in, in the sense of that short term, you know, you know, time period, you have to have a continuous plan for your business to continue to operate. I'll give you one example from a a company that I've dealt with, you know, here in the last six months. Um, you know, they they have a lot of offshore you know, resources in a third party that help them with things like processing purchase orders, um, you know, uh, you know, HR related, uh, you know, type stuff, procurement related type stuff like that. And, and this offshore entity as part of the contracting terms with this company agreed that they would have a BCP or a business continuity plan in the event of a disaster. Um, but, but this organization had about 3,500 of these offshore resources, but the business continuity plan only accounted for about 200 laptops for those for those 3,500 offshore resources. And so when, when COVID hit, all of a sudden they're looking at going, oh my gosh, we do not have enough laptops to send all 3,500 of these people home uh, to, to continue to operate for this one particular organization. And, and so really it's that mindset of, how do I continue to function as a company, you know, given that level of crisis? And I think this this level of crisis has taken a shape that's unlike a hurricane or an earthquake or anything else that 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 any organization's ever had to deal with in the past. You know, and it's interesting you talked about that. Like one of the things I was talking to one company about, and I've actually had this conversation was when it comes to the business continuity plan was looking at their suppliers and their and their service providers. Right. Because sometimes what happens is if they have smaller service providers, you don't know how they've been affected by this. Are they still in business? You know, are they running streamline? Have they lost staff? You know, is your SLA now different? So that can affect your company. Right. So I know for one was 
I had a conversation. I asked them, you know, so for your business continuity, your disaster recovery, your answer response, you know, you look into those plans. Who's who provides that? Is that internal or external? And they said, well, some areas is actually ex- is external providers. We have partners that do that. And I said, when's the last time you talked to them? Well, yeah, before the pandemic. Why? I said, give them a call and just see how they're doing because their response time might have changed because they might have to lay off staff. So you might have a four hour SLA or a 12 hour SLA. But now that might be two to three days because they're running really lean because they don't have enough money, right? Because they're not getting revenue. They're not bringing new clients. Maybe even the clients are asking for payment kind of uh, lenience a little bit, you know, in their monthly payments or, you know, what what's going on. So then from that, I was saying, look, check into them. And one company I know that checked in said like one company actually was out of business. They called them, you know, this phone has been disconnected. They went to the website, website's down. And they were like, well, wow, like I, I didn't think of that. I didn't put that in my perspective of that. That could have happened because I was so concentrated on what was going on with our business and rightfully so. You know, they're doing their, you know, cost analysis. They're doing their forecasting. They're looking at what's what's the supply chain. They're going to meetings, kind of understanding the business and what's going to happen in the business over the next 90 days, six months, one year, thinking all that. And then and now they have to kind of think of, okay, what are going with our partners and the people that have provided service? So it's pretty crazy that way. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's, I, I think there's, this is why I love to, like I made the comment earlier about love to watch the world change around us because I think that this is when learning is occurring, right? This is when we're going to learn all of those things that we did because they were checkbox security, right? Oh, well, compliance says I have to have a BCPDR plan, here, I wrote my BCPDR plan down on a piece of paper, and then you actually go and execute that, and you're like, holy cow, this is not what I thought I was going to have to do for my BCPDR plan. You know, I, I think this is this is an aha moment for a lot of folks. It is, and, and I think what happens is you're talking about compliance. Not all companies, but there's some companies that it's a checkbox. Like, it's just a checklist they go through, and then they don't touch it in for a year, right? They don't go through it. They don't do review it. They don't do tabletop or exercise. They don't do that until the auditor says, oh, by the way, I'm going to be in here next week. And then they're like, oh, shit. Right. Yep. Now I have to go through, grab all the resources that you have available. OK, everyone kind of review. Look at the logs. Look at this. Look at that. And then what happens is then they try to get up and they find out very quickly that a lot of it's out of compliance. Things they have to update or even just make sure they have that ready. And now they rush around for you know, a month to two months. Get it all done, rush it, say they hate the process, and then they go through it again, right? But but here's what here's what I would ask you, right? Is, yeah. is how many companies do you know, you know, A, actually do really good tabletop exercises, or B, could have done a tabletop exercise to even remotely prepare them for something like this? I'm finding now like more companies, especially because of COVID, the the larger organization enterprise environment says we know, like they're they have teams. They have teams that are constantly on this. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of those teams are deep in projects, right? They're 20 projects, 30 projects deep for the year. COVID flipped that upside down where the ones that were low priority now became high. And then all the things that we're talking about also became like, we're doing that. We should have done that yesterday, yeah. right? Kind of activities. And I'm finding that they're really evaluating it. I find with small to mid-sized companies, they have a, a hard time with it. Right. Those are the ones now in their defense, in the conversations, they're trying to build business. They're trying to get revenues. They're trying to get sales. They're looking at, you know, customer service, supply chain management, like all that stuff. So looking at security, security sometimes takes up, you know, you know, down to fifth or even eighth or ninth position in their, in their to-do list. But then what happens is as things like happen also, as you know, it flips upside down. Now it becomes one or two, right? 
one is keep the business going to how secure we are or one keep the business going to let's make sure we're our employees and everything happen then three you know look, look, let's look at security because now all our workforce now is at home what does that mean so, so i've got one for you i've got yep. one for you let's, let's let's do a little test here yep of, of all the projects that you've seen across you know your peers your friends your clients whatever the case is what is the one project that they were okay slow rolling or they, they knew it was going to take years and years and years that they instantly accelerated in cloud 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 clouds the one i hear the most clouds like yeah, yeah we're going to do it amazon azure we're, we're working on it this year and then it became oh my god we're doing it we have to do it like in two days three days <laughs> <laughs> people need access right no go, don't get me wrong the people that had like hybrid access where they had like some on-prem some right. some in the cloud kind of just transitioned quickly but the ones that didn't like literally were thinking about it those were like overnight hiding, uh, hiring like MSPs going, yeah, we need to get this over like now. So, so mine's been MFA. Like I, I know a lot of companies that have okay. um, that have slow rolled MFA. As, as a matter of fact, I, without naming names, I know of at least three Fortune 100 companies that have been on a two-year roadmap to roll out MFA that as soon as COVID hit, boom, it became an instantaneous requirement for their entire organization. Why do you think that is? Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I think corporations make excuses, and I say that cynically. I say that wholeheartedly cynical. I think um, I can. I know one organization that I was personally a part of that was on one of these two-year roadmaps. Um, you know, for for MFA. Uh, uh, the customer experience, and, I, and I'll use my air quotes here, right? The customer experience conversation right. was, was the one that, that they were like, well, we have to be cognizant of the customer experience. And, you know, because of all of these dis different types of customers that we've got inside of the IT organization, you know, we've got to be careful how we affect them in a negative way by doing something like MFA. Right. And um, I, I think when, when you see that the entire organization is working from home now, um, I think culturally, these entities say, holy cow, this is actually a much bigger deal than, than we thought. Bad on us for slow rolling this and not making this a priority, and now they're going to make it a priority. But I, I, I think that, I think that they, they drag their feet on it, and, and you know, until, until something hits them in the face, it's not really a priority. See, and I think now with uh, multi-factor authentication, and anyone doesn't know that's watching this, is MFA. With that being... A, implemented now what what are you seeing are you seeing you know biometrics are you seeing just you know texting or are you seeing like i know when i was selling it before it was um uh what was it true factor decentralized uh password authentication yeah long long sentence but it was more the where the it was decentralized to the phone where mfa and a lot of t times that's on like uh it's migrated or integrated with Active Directory or LDAP or anything along that line where this was now where authentication where it was on the actual phone, right? So you had something on the phone where you would actually use your thumbprint, face recognition and go through that. So what are you seeing, Neil? Are you seeing like the standard, you know, MFA? I think it, I think it ties into what you're saying with the cloud stuff. Um, when you, when you think about, you know, you use the AWS example, but I think you see much more people when they think cloud, they think, you know, migrating from an on-prem domain controller and on-prem exchange server to something like Office 365 from Microsoft in the cloud. I think they literally take that and they turn around to Microsoft and they go, Microsoft, we need MFA. What do we do here? And, and Microsoft says, here, just hit this checkbox that turns MFA on in your entire organization. 
they turn MFA on for their Office 365 environment and they wipe their hands and they're done. Um, forgetting that, you know, at least in some of the Fortune 100 companies that, that I, I talk to and I'm experienced too, where they have, you know, you know, thousands of um, either custom developed apps or third party apps for integration like Salesforce or Workday or things like that, you know, that they're not taking into consideration with, with you know, some type of single sign on strategy. I think, you know, you know, identity becomes something that um, all of a sudden, you know, you know, screams at you from, from the shadows. Um, you know, I think us in tech and cyber always knew that identity was something that was incredibly important. But until you have COVID where none of your identities are on-prem and you have to try to do all of this data protection and identity management with folks across the world and across the, the, the threat landscape, you know, I, I think most organizations are literally just turning around and saying, turn on MFA and if it translates into, you know, an, an SMS on your phone, they could care less because they just needed to get that MFA in check. I don't think anybody, and, and I say anybody from like an 80%, you know, type of scenario, is even looking at things like, oh, we need to do Duo, or we need to go back to RSA hard tokens, or you know anything like that. They're just like, Microsoft, please turn this on. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I, I'm totally, I'm totally okay being that cynical. Well, and here's the thing: like one of the things that I, I'm, I'm studying with uh, one of our colleagues, Joel, is the CSSP, and they talk about that triad: CIA, like the confidentiality, data integrity, or integrity and availability. So always when that that comes up with, you know, multi-factor authentication, I always think of the availability because now they're starting to lock things down and they have now a level of security. So now when they do that, there's confidentiality, there's integrity kind of authentication, but availability, now people are now confused. Like, how do I use this? And how do I get in the app? And, you know, where am I getting the pin? So then now it's, it's more complicated. I, I, I disagree with that. Like okay. if, if you, if you're, if you're, you know, if, if if you are doing mobile banking on your phone, and I don't care what age group you're in, if you pick up your phone and you check whatever your bank is, um, or if you have Google, right, and you check your Gmail, and you have not been forced into some form of a multi-factor authentication, then then whatever technology that you're using is just so old it doesn't support it. Because almost and I don't have this fact, this is me pulling a, a data fact completely out of, out of you know, thin air, but I'm pretty sure most mainstream, 80 to 90% of the mainstream financial organizations that are out there now force their, their clients into multi-factor authentication in some way, shape, or form. Right. Hey, we see you logging in from a new device. We'd like to send you a text message. You know, you know please hit OK to do that. Or, you know, you know, something along those lines. And so people are used to multi-factor authentication. What they're not used to is they're not used to their employer enforcing it on them because we've had such lackadaisical um, acceptable use policies that have allowed the user to treat their work computer like their home computer, okay. um, which basically is completely and totally devoid of security controls whatsoever. So let's talk about security controls. Now, I had a uh, friend of mine uh, with SIM swapping. And with SIM swapping, he got compromised and he had uh, two-factor authentication set up and they they were able to call the uh, service provider, swip, uh, swap swap out the card, get get their own kind of phone now, whatever it was, even a burner or their own phone set up. And now they're able to get all the authentication. So because I know you're in the tech, you're deep into this. What's your thoughts on that? So I actually did a stream on, on SIM swapping. Um, I think I did this either right around or right after the uh, actually I think I did it right after the Twitter hack um, mm -hmm. 
you know, I did, I did a stream on this and, you know, we, I've covered SIM swapping before in the past. And one of the things you have to keep in mind is that SIM swapping is not a commodity threat, right? If we think about um, re-evil, if we think about, you know, maze ransomware, if we think about ransomware like that, those are commodity threats, right? They're out there, you know, running spam campaigns to try to use phishing emails to get into organizations. They're out there trying to brute force um, RDP connections, remote desktop protocol, secure shell, you know, protocols to try to brute force their way into organizations. They're out there actively trying to penetrate organizations so that they can deploy their ransomware and then call up that company and say, we want $5 million or we're going to leak all your data to the Internet. Right. Very commodity, right, in the sense that, you know, anybody can do it now, especially with ransomware as a service and a lot of the affiliate programs that are going on there. SIM swapping requires a level of targeting that says, I, Neil, bad hacker, um, really want to get into you branding your, your phone. Right. And so I have to go out of my way to to get a burner device, target you, do some social, um, you know, networking, you know, open source intelligence gathering on you, um, call your provider and 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 actively try to exploit your device. It's not a commodity threat. And so I think that that's so I say that to say I think SIM swapping is a little bit of an unfair example because it doesn't account for the majority of the threats that most people will run into that are out there. Because, you know, like I said, SIM swapping requires a, a certain level of targeted targeted activity that most people will not ever be a victim of. Okay. But do you think that's something now people are going to go after more because of the remote workforce? No, or, or, do you think it, or do you think it's just more malware and ransomware? I think it's more malware and ransomware. I think when you look at... When you look at the success of how ransomware has gotten in the last seven months, when you look at the the you know you know the the increase, and I say increase, and I and I talked with with General Williams about this on Monday, um, former U.S. Cyber Command you know director of operations, you know I think what we're seeing in the industry and in the space is I think we're seeing you know more visibility into ransomware attacks given you know, the, the, the visibility around working from home, given the visibility around COVID, given the visibility around the extortion that some of these ransomware providers are doing, I think ransomware has always been in the space. I think, you know, if you look at the stats that the FBI puts out, ransomware is still an incredibly lucrative, um, you know, type of, of, of malware that's out there. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing more more eyes on target, if you will, that says, oh my gosh, Canon got hacked. Oh my gosh, Jack Daniels got hacked. Oh my gosh, you know, Tesla, you know, did you see that? Did you see the FBI thing that happened this week? No, I haven't. Just been so. Oh my God. Oh my God. Let me, so, so this is going to be, this is insane. This is like okay. straight out of a spy novel. Okay. A Russian national flew to Nevada, offered a Tesla employee $1 million to take a thumb drive with malware into Tesla factory in Nevada, plug it into a computer, and then that was it. Okay. And that had already been successful at least one other time that the FBI knew about with a company called CWT that does training. Okay. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and, and so I think when you look at that, because they knew that they were going to get five, six, ten million dollars in ransom paid out. I mean, that's a that's a 10x payout in some cases, even a 5x payout. Right. You know, with, with, with some of these cases. And so, you know, at, at a 5x, that's better than most M&A activities that I've been a part of, you know. 
And so I think with with that type of high profile extortion type behavior that's going on now, nah, uh, I, I think ransomware will continue to be, you know, the thing that we hear the most about in 2020. So now correct me if I'm wrong. I was hearing rumors about this, but there's from understanding the dark web and kind of there isn't there actually like help desks for people with ransomware? Yeah, 100 <laughs> percent. There is there is some of these ransomware vendors, um, you know, you know, the ransomware service stuff they have. Um, oh, gosh, I, I don't have the document handy. Um, you know, when I did the, the e-learn security podcast about a month ago, we actually had a document that we showed during that um, that actually showed compartmentalization that um, very much mirrors like my days in the Air Force, okay. um, where we would have like a malware author, we would have an exploit developer, we would have somebody who does research and, and social engineering, we would have somebody who handles the phishing campaigns, we would ha- have somebody who, you know, handles post exploitation and, and whatnot. And so you've got these compartmentalizations inside of some of these, um, these, these cybercrime groups. And yes, part of that is they have their own marketing organizations, they have their own, um, you know, help desk to try to troubleshoot it. They have SLAs um, behind their ransomware. You you can pay for like uh, premium support that says that you know whenever this piece of variant of mal- malware gets detected, we promise you that within 24 or 48 hours we'll have a new one pushed out to you to continue <laughs> to evict an- antivirus. Oh, absolutely. No, it's it has become so back when I back in my days in the military when I taught um, U.S. Cyber Command, you know, offensive hacking techniques. I used to have a term they referred to as as Neil's levels of hackers, right? Okay. So yeah. level one was like script kitties, right? Very basic. Level two was cyber criminals and level three was state sponsored actors. And people oftentimes confused that the only reason I had those three levels was because state sponsored actors were at the top and that was because they had zero days. And I was like, no, 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 that's not the case at all. And I actually equated it to how we do things in the military. And and I go back to the stream that I had on Monday with General Williams because we talked about this and we talked about the ability to go from strategic level doctrine to task at the different strategic operational and tactical levels inside of an organization. And actually, if you look at Neil's three levels of hackers and you take a concept such as strategy to task and you look at them at each of the three levels, you can see that this is why Neil has three levels of hackers, because at the script kitty level down at the very bottom, there is zero concept of strategy to task, right? They have no strategy. Right. They have no operational objective whatsoever. They're just like just uh, run a uh, run a script and then see where it goes, right? Go, let's go. Let's kind of websites and see where we go from here. Kind of close your eyes and, and see what happens, right? Absolutely. And even in the middle tier, right, with the cyber criminals, you know, they had a lot of operational objectives, right? Their operational objective was to get money. Even if you were to like make it very high level, say my strategic objective was to get money, but they were very operationally focused, whether you're talking about money mules, whether you're talking about spam campaigns, it was very operationally focused. At the at the, the state sponsor level, that's where they were like, we're getting national security objectives given to us by the government. We then take those and we divide those out across a bunch of different combatant commands, and then we take those different combatant commands and we operationalize those that out into the tactical level tasks. Okay. If you think about that and you start to look at how some of these cyber criminal organizations are starting to act, they're really starting to become more of that level three type of uh, hacker in Neil's three levels of hackers just because of their ability to do a really, really profound sense of strategy to task. Wow. So where would you say like when when companies are getting compromised, where what level would you say? Would you say that's kind of script kiddies? Would you say that's your mid tier? I, I think I think most organizations sh- severely struggle in mid tier 
I've seen a lot of Fortune 100 companies still struggle at, at script, Kitty. I don't think that there's any non-government, non-energy sector organization that is thinking about state-sponsored activity. All of them want to think that they think about state-sponsored activity, but they can't even protect against script kitties and, and, and you know, la layer one and layer two, you know, type of hackers. Um, I think certain financial organizations, when we think about like JP Morgan Chase, Fidelity, um, Amex, you know, organizations like that, they're probably doing pretty good just because of how FFIC has come down on a lot of folks over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, NYDFS has helped with that as well. I don't, I don't think PCI, you know, has helped much with that at all, but I think some of the bigger organizations have really helped drive a lot of that. Okay. Um, but I think I think when you get outside of when you get outside of FS, when you get outside of energy sector, and when you get outside of DOD, significant drop down after that, hundred percent. It's concerning. So what should and now we're probably having like you know people later on, uh, not right now. Uh, uh, I'm just kind of looking to see if there's have anybody in the chat. But as as people start to listen to this, listen to this after, what what can they do? I mean, this is all doom and gloom kind of scary stuff. I I hate this. I hate. I hate going on doom and gloom on you. <laughs> but I what? Really you know the thing. People have to know. Like I, I, I like to kind of have the contrast, and I think you do as well. People have to be aware of what's out there, so then they can do the things that they need to do, and that's governance, policies and procedures. You know, implementing new technology, education, cybersecurity. You know, awareness. What do you think people through this pandemic should be looking at right now? I, I, I hate this. I hate this question a lot of different. Right. And, and I think I think you would I think you also hate this question, which is why you ask it to me is because you like asking hard questions. I, and, and, and the problem is, is I, I don't think that there is I, I don't think that there's anything different that you do during this pandemic to 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 solve those problems that you don't do before this pandemic or after this pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I think we have a myriad of cultural problems inside of cybersecurity. I think we have problems in cybersecurity. I think we have problems in the verticals that we work for. Um, I think we have problems in the vendors. I have said this numerous times. I said it to you, you know, off off stream as well, and I've said it on stream as well. I think we have a money problem in cybersecurity. I think we have too much money in cybersecurity. Okay. Um, you know, I think that we have too many problems for this to be something that we fix or worry about. And and, and I hate to be all more doom and gloom because I think that you know. The biggest thing that any organization, if, if you were to walk away from this stream today and go back to work and be like, Neil said to do this to protect against hackers, you know, have you had a maturity assessment? Have you gone back to the basics? Do you have end of life systems? Are you, are you really scanning for vulnerabilities? And if you are really scanning for vulnerabilities, are you really fixing those vulnerabilities? Right. right? That's nothing different you know, in this pandemic versus before this pandemic versus after this pandemic, because um, there's a there's a fantastic Twitter account there out there that I follow. It's called Bad Packets. Um, I think it's at bad underscore packets. Okay. Um, it's, it's one of the few threat intelligence vendors that I have a lot of respect for. But when you watch some of their tweets, they talk about like, hey, um, Iran is out there right now scanning for, you know, Pulse VPN, you know, vulnerabilities. That's been maybe 10 months, 10 or 12 months now that those Pulse VPN vulnerabilities have been out there. Right. And you still have threat actors that are out there scanning for that. So if you had a vulnerability management program that was identifying vulnerabilities that were in your infrastructure and patching them within a reasonable time period, then you'd have nothing to worry about. Right. right? 
if you're if you if you're realizing that you shouldn't have remote desktop protocol facing the internet without multi-factor authentication on there, you have nothing to worry about. But most organizations can't get past the basics. I wish people would stop looking at DLP. I wish people would stop looking at CASB. I wish people would stop looking at AI and ML. And I wish they would just get back to the basics and just focus on the basics. So, and, and here's a good point to kind of bring that up as well. Um, what I find in that is that as people are looking at vulnerabilities, they get their, they, you know, they go through it, they have the remediation, they go, they change everything, but then they change something to their systems, right? And they go, okay, we're good. But no, you have to really go back, like you said, go back through that process again. Is there a gap? Is there a vulnerability that now because you did that deployment, because you did all that, it has something come up? Is something different now? Right? Is it it part of a program? Are you doing it programmatically? Is it part of your ecosystem? Is it part of your culture? And and you know that's not rocket science. Like you know, you you can't you can't buy that in a technology. You just have to you have to fix that culturally about your organization. Right, and I think that's something that people have to think about as they're doing this. Is going through that route is you know what's our change management process, and then after fact, what's our evaluation to do the checks and balances to make sure everything's going, right? Because what happens is, and, and I find this, is that people do, and I worked for IT for the Ontario government, and you hear about these change processes. And what happens is you, I never heard after the fact of now we have to do a security review, right? right? We do a security review as we're going. We're trying to make sure everything's hardened. But when it's in production, when it's out there, why not do another security review, right? Because right. now, you know, some things might happen. And because there's so many variables and, and facets to it, now do a security review then just to make sure there's no gaps, there's no open holes, there's no ports open, there's nothing like that. And I, f- I find there's only a certain handful of companies that do that. The rest are kind of like business as usual, keep pumping out the projects, keep going. Or, or even worse, right? There's companies that are really good about responding to the threats. I remember when WannaCry came out, right? Um, I, I happened to be part of an organization that when WannaCry came out, you know, you know, to ask them to remediate critical vulnerabilities in, in less than 90 days was, was, you know, you know, asking for a miracle was, was equate to asking for a miracle. But when WannaCry hit, we literally got 80 to 85% of the infrastructure patched, you know, for, for 1710, MS1710 within 48 hours, mm-hmm. which is, is phenomenal for an organization that was this size. I mean, we're talking like 150 endpoints, including manufacturing sites, um, you know, things like that. And it's like, well, hold on, if we can do this for an emergency like WannaCry, why can't we bake this into a program and why can't we do it more more frequently? And that's the problem is that people go, well, well, this was this was an emergency. And it's like, well, no, every critical vulnerability that we bring you is an emergency. This one just happened to get global visibility. And that's the only reason you cared about it. And, and this is the cultural problem that I feel like we struggle with is that we've created too much noise as cybersecurity where all everybody hears from us is until there's something that shows up on CNN or Forbes. And, and I say that cynically, but if you've ever been part of an organization where the, the CFO or the CEO or one of the board members comes to you and says, hey, I saw this Forbes thing that says that, you know, WhatsApp got hacked. You know, should I be worried about my phone, you know, getting hacked by, you know, the Chinese over my WhatsApp messages, right? And it's just like, you know, there's, there's where everybody's attention tolerance has gotten to cybersecurity is that if it doesn't hit the news, Nobody cares about it. Or, and I'm going to add to that, or affect their company directly. Yeah. Right. Like, and we're, we're hearing stuff like, you know, uh, ransomware will go through colleagues and, and companies that are like companies or at least the organizations and they'll talk at high levels. 
And then all of a sudden you hear like Life Labs. Now, don't get me wrong. Life Labs kind of went mainstream. You got the news. But I was hearing conversations with other uh, senior level executives that were saying, should we worry? Should we be concerned? Because we have health information. We have the kind of similar systems that they do. Should we be worried? And it wasn't just because it was newsworthy, but it was also that relative to, hey, we're kind of a similar company. Right. Yep. Should we be worried about that? Yeah, it's in our vertical or center industry. Right. Absolutely. I, I think we I think we've got I think we have problems because of our age. I've said this before in conversation with a lot of folks. I think we uh um I, I think we're still too immature as a as an industry to to know how to handle a lot of these conversations and how to get these conversations right. And I and I think it's one of the things that and then, you know, we, when we first uh, originally met, we were talking about kind of sales and the sales process and kind of, you know, sales people contacting. I think what happens, we become numb to salespeople and all that is because they're cold calling, they're getting there and you're like, okay, I'm not interested. I just have so much going on and, you know, I don't want to deal with it. And then what happens is, you know, as long as if, and this is kind of my caveat, to, as long as they're not trying to pitch you or sell you into kind of a, and put an invoice in front of you, but they're actually trying to give you information take a few minutes, ask them to send you some information, just kind of find out what's going because they might have something with their ears to the ground that something's going on. Then all of a sudden, two months, three months later, your company's now dealing with. And now it's like, oh, shoot, now we have to find someone to help us, be it cloud security, be it, you know, um, VPN, whatever that may be, or maybe even getting, you know, breached. And then there's a ransomware attack on your, on your company. I find right now there's kind of that happy medium. You just have to keep your ear to the ground because you can't know everything. I mean, it, I'm great that I'm connected with you. So I get to learn like, you know, what you're looking at and other professionals like it, but there's no way I can know everything, right? As one individual, or even if I was a CISO or, or you know, a security security manager, director, VP, whatever that may be, there's no way I can know everything that's going on. But I think total, total tangent there on this one too, because I think really the problem though is that, right, you know, and I have tons of friends that are that are in the sales, um, you know, kind of kind of line of business. You know, the sales culture, if you if you came from IT, is very transactional. Right. Right. Go in there, get it done. Give me my give me my ten, fifteen percent, whatever the case is, and come back out. Right. Right. And what people in who have transitioned from IT into cybersecurity aren't realizing is that cybersecurity is a very relationship based business. Like I don't want to. I don't want to talk to a sales guy. As a matter of fact, I will. I will never talk to a sales guy about anything sales related. Right. Um, I'll build a relationship with a sales guy, and I. And this is literally, you know, if, if when 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 I sit in these SOC director, you know, CISO type positions, right? You know, and and salespeople come to talk to me. Literally, in that the first fifteen minutes of the conversation is, you're not going to sell me on X, whatever it is. I don't care. You're not going to sell me on it. Right. And, and they're like, well, what do you mean? Do you not need it? Do you not want it? Do you not have it? Do you not understand it? Whatever he says, I said, no, no, you're not here to sell me. I already know what it is I want, need. I already have my strategy in my head. You know, if you're not here to talk to me every week, if you're not here to build a relationship, if you're not here to, you know, help keep me abreast and informed of things that I can't see around the corner, get out of my office. Right. right. I want you to call me every week, but I want you to call me every week to tell me what the 10 other customers that, that you've got in your portfolio that match my demographic are seeing. Right. I want you to call me every week and I want you to tell me about this latest and greatest thing that you just saw that, um, you know, here's here's why you think that it's the latest and greatest thing you just saw and let's knock it down. I want you to get your tech people on the phone to talk to me and I want to beat, beat up your technology left and right, right? And then your sales cycle is going to be six months or 12 months and you need to be okay with that. And if you're not okay with it, get out of my office. Right. 
And I think that's one thing. And I, I, you know, I'm grateful to the company that I work for. We, we have that relationship and understanding. I've worked with previous companies and it's like, you got your quarterly reviews, right? You got your weekly forecasting meetings, right? And then you got your quarterly reviews of numbers that you have to meet. And it's like you said, it is pressure sales. Get in, get it, get, try to get the deal and then move on to the next company. And then what happens with those, those type of companies that you work with, the challenge is that, like you said, and I totally agree with you, you lose the relationship, you lose providing value, you lose. And what I consider is the consultative role, which I love is to be able to say, what are you working on, Neil? Is there any area that I can help you with? And don't get me wrong. I'm the first person to say, if someone says I'm working on this and, and my company doesn't do it or we don't have the, the, the bench for it. We don't do it. Let me refer you to someone that I know that does, right? Let me refer you to a company. Like I, I got someone asked me, I think it was the other day, this, this past week about, uh, do we do implementation of cloud? No, we don't. We do security, but I know an MSP that does it. Would you like me to refer you to them? Right. And just kind of give you that connection, you know, cause I want to help you out. Right. And then what happens is that person to me now is a colleague, right? It's a relationship. It's not the point where, Oh shit, I lost a sale. No, that's a relationship to because I, I was able to help them out. And then if they need anything later, ask me. And if I can't can't do it, then that's fine. I'll I'll see if I can refer you to someone. Very similar situation. I, I I'm I I have several several close colleagues that work for various different companies, and and I'm working with one company right now um, that I know can't do what it is that I want. You know, I I'm I, I have no illusions about that whatsoever. Um, you know, but just out of mutual respect for them, because they have been partners, because they've been friends, because we literally get on the phone and talk every week and they ask about my stream. They ask about how my business is going. They ask about how my family's doing. We talk and we spend 20 minutes of an hour long conversation talking about literally nothing else other than business. And then we spend another 20 minutes talking about the industry. And then we may spend 15 or 20 minutes after that talking about true, true business. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm asking them, hey, are you interested in, in participating in this project that I've got going on? Um, knowing that they, they're they going to struggle to come to the table with a, a sufficient proposal or they're just going to say, well, this just really isn't our wheelhouse you know, type mentality. But it's because of that relationship that I'm like, I don't mind offering it to them to, to show that I value the partnership and the relationship. And I think that that's what I think that's what doesn't exist these days between the practitioners and the sales force or the strategicians and the sales force anymore is, you know, that mutual respect that, no, you can't do everything for me. No matter what you think that you, you your, your marketing team tells you, you can't do everything for me. And, and, and the sooner you come to grips with that, the better off our relationship will be. Right. And then that's, I think that provides value. And correct me if I'm wrong, that provides value because now you trust the person. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're like, you know what? Yeah, they can't do it, so we need to go find somebody else, right? And it's like, all right, well, that sucks, but you know, at least they were honest about it. Because the worst thing that you can do is you can come into an organization claiming to be able to do something, and then you screw up a project that, you know, heaven forbid, it be a, a multi-million-dollar cloud implementation, right? And you screw it up, and you know, you know, now you've got to pay another couple million dollars to have somebody come in and fix it. Exactly, right? And I think, the, I think no is more powerful than yes, Absolutely. right? Especially kind of in those conversations, telling someone no builds up more rapport, builds up the relation, builds up the, the trust versus saying the, was the improv, the yes end. Yes, we can do it. end. you know, we can do that and then try to figure it out. I think it's more value to say, no, that's not our expertise. Let me refer you out. And these, these are the areas that we specialize in. But I think, I think that no goes both ways, right? Because one of the things that I don't think happens enough is when I say no to a salesperson, they take that as, as try harder. 
And, and I think that that's, right. I, I think that that's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a disparity there in that, that proportionality between the acceptance of no, it's like, you know, Neil, would you, you know, would you really like to, to see what this product is like? No, nah, no, nah, not really. It doesn't fit into my strategy. I already know what product it is that I want. Um, you know, I don't like you, you know, whatever the case is. And they're like, Oh, so if I get my CEO on the phone or, you know, would you do care to do a demo or, Hey, I'll throw you some, some AirPods. If you'll do this, do this demo with me, are you sure you don't want to do it? It's like, no, no, that, that's not code for try harder, dude. <laughs> right. Well, I think that, I think now talk on the other side, a lot of times you have to have that resilience because you've caught the person in whatever. So it's like, like you probably on a, in between meetings, on a phone call, whatever. And I've caught you in between that. And I'm on the phone with you and you're like, no, I'm not interested. Right. And it's on the sales side, you're going, no, you're not interested right now. Or no, right. I caught you at a bad time. And you're just, I'm the guy, the first guy that's caught you in between two meetings that you're pissed off. And you're like, screw you. Right. 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 <laughs> so I think on the sales side, like on our side, that's the hard thing. Cause you don't know. And especially when you're doing it cold, you don't know the other guy. So sometimes you do have to push a little bit. Because you break through and then there's actually even just a conversation. For me, it's not about the opportunity. At least I get a conversation, right? And the conversation is, is what are you working on? Oh, I'm, I'm working on X. And, and I'll use that example as cloud. I'm working on cloud. Oh, awesome. What are you guys doing with cloud? Oh, we're migrating. We're doing all this stuff. So is that something because of the pandemic or something you're already doing? Okay, because of this. Okay, perfect. Let me know if you have any security needs of that. We do that. But if you're not, you're good. You know, let me know. And it's, it's more a relationship. But here's, here's what I would we were to role play this whole thing out, right? Yep. Because I love this conversation, right? Is is you know if I'm sitting in my seat, right? I'm I'm CISO or I'm I'm, I'm you know running a, a security team, right? Um, and you say to me, well, what are you working on right now? Instantly in my head is okay. Whatever I say, you're going to try to find a way to sell me on something, right? And what I what I what I would want to figure out in a in a very collaborative session is how do we fix that first part of the translation nightmare, right? Where what is it that you can really say that gets me to really talk about what it is that I'm working on so that I don't instantly think that whatever I say that's going to come out of my mouth, you're instantly going to turn around and say, I can help you with that. Right. So being on the other side, what would get you, what would that conversation look like for you that get you to open up? You know, this is going to sound cheeky, right? And, and, and I, want, I want everybody to understand, you know, having been a nerd for well over 25 years, it wasn't until I started my own business and I started my own stream and I realized that I had to do my own marketing and sales. And I realized I have an amazing amount of respect for Brandon, you, and all my other sales friends that are out there at all these different companies. So I didn't realize how hard you guys' job was until I actually had to do it myself. So, so I say all this, you know, having just learned, like, what a nightmare of a job you guys have. So, uh, so now contextual, right? You're like, <laughs> stop calling me. You guys just have the easiest job. And then now you do it. You're like, Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm actually, now I'm actually kind of like, Hey, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I'm just not interested right now. I used to, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy on LinkedIn that when a sales guy would come out to me, I would just like rail on him so hard. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I started my business and it wasn't until I, I, I had to market and sell, sell my own services that I was kind of like, okay, yeah, that was a real, real you know, sh shitty move that I was doing on, on the people. And so um, <clears throat> one, one of the things that, and so that's why I say that, that I preface that by saying that I now actually have a greater appreciation for this statement than I did before, which is, you know, I actually want people to, to know me. Like um, several of the folks who have come on the stream 
um, or have asked to come on the stream obviously have an interest in me, not just for my personal brand, but also with the logos of the companies that I happen to be associated with. And I won't go into all of that, but just right. you know, logos of the companies that I happen to be associated with. And I get it. I know it. I mean, it's, it's a nice logo for them to have in their sales portfolio. And so I get it. Um, and, and, and so what they've done, though, is they've taken an interest in Neil as the cybersecurity professional. They've taken an interest as Neil as the influencer. They've taken an interest in, you know, you know Neil speaks at conferences. Neil gets asked personally by Proofpoint, Carbon Black, Splunk, you know, to go speak at their events. This was obviously all prior to COVID and everything like that. Um, maybe we should approach Neil as a person and we should, you know, say, hey, we heard you speak at this conference or we watched your stream and we heard you mention this or we've read your white paper and you talked about this. And, and those conversations where they've come to me and they've said, we know you, we've seen your content. Here's what we think about you in the industry. We'd really like to have a conversation with you about identity. And it might be somebody from Okta, right, coming to me and saying, we'd really like to have a conversation with you about identity. That's where I go. Okay, let's get on the phone. Let's talk about identity. And we had an hour-long conversation. This was actually pretty recent. We had an hour-long conversation about identity, um, where at the end of it, I was like, you know what? I'd really like to introduce you guys to, you know, the security architect at Company X. Right. And and that was it. That was it. I mean, just just something as simple as that. You know, I was like, okay, yeah, I actually really think these guys have got something, and I like where their head and their philosophy is at. Let's send them over here and let's go have a conversation. And I realized that that does not fit into any sales strategy whatsoever. But at least with somebody like myself, that's exactly what resonated with me. So it does fit in the sales strategy of all these more executive or senior level people that have actually done proper sales training. I'm going to preface that by saying don't use that as a lead in to try to close Neil or someone like that. <laughs> well, no, because some people will say like I saw your, your YouTube video, your Twitch and Oma was really good about, you know, when you're talking about ransomware and all that. Hey, I have a ransomware product. Would you be interested in buying that? That's a good point. Don't good point. do that. Like if you're interested in ransomware and you can talk about it and you're really interested in Neil, do that. And I'm, I'm saying this to the audience and people who are watching this. Don't use it as a lead in because you have a leverage or it's a strategy they're using. If you have an interest in Neil, like and for me, everyone I've talked to and I have a kind of a LinkedIn message that's going out to people that you, I'm really interested in your pro bono to have a quick 30 minute conversation just to see how you're doing. And there's anything that I can help you with it. The people that I've got on the phone with actually now realize you know, I got some people that basically tell me off, like, you know, this is a sales thing, screw off. But the people yeah. I've actually gotten the phone realize I'm actually going, how are you doing? How's your family? You know, and I'm actually, that's me being concerned. It's not point of a strategy that I'm going to get you say yes three times and then I'm going to get you into a meeting and then I'm going to try to pitch you a service or a product. It's literally me going, how are you doing? Like, literally, I don't care about the sale. How are you doing right now through the pandemic? What's going on? You know, how's things going at work? How's things going with your family? And then having that conversation and being a person first, right? And a relationship first. And then saying like, you know, is there anything I can help with? Now, you've got 30 minutes of my time. Is there any security questions that you might have? Right? Anything that you guys are dealing with or working on? And some people go, yeah, we're working on cloud. We're working on cybersecurity awareness training. We're working on, you know, these implementations. Do you have any questions for me? Right? And I go that route. That's my process and the way I do it. Because then I know we're talking about what their interests them. I'll try to answer whatever I can. I say, look, if you need some technical guys, I can grab my guys and get them on the phone. You can ask them some questions. Again, part of the 30-minute pro bono, and then we can just see where it goes. We're not Our goal is not to put an invoice in front of you. It's to help you through the pandemic. And for me, that I know it's not part of a sales process, and I might even get trouble for other sales guys. Oh, yeah, you're, you're doing that? But I, you know what? Fuck you. I don't really care, right? Let's, let's put that straight out there. I don't care is because you know what? 
it's about the relationship with the people that I work with first, right? And what, how I can help them. And then being a person first, not a sales guy, not trying to meet my quota, not trying to do that. Can I help? Can I be a, you know, a, a, a professional and someone of value to them that can help them first? And if I can't, perfect. At least then I'm connected with. If you have any questions, let me know and just let it go. Not trying to go, hey, can I follow up in two weeks and then can we make another call? Because I know there's an opportunity that you need this technology. You need X. You need AI technology that we sell. And I, we don't sell it. Just I'm using it as an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just try to run, run it run it down their throat, right? My goal is, is I would like to get connected as many people as I can, build up my network, have that relationships. Because at any point in time, things change for people. And then if they have questions or concerns, they can always reach out to me. And it's no cost, no invoice, nothing on their on their side. And that's how I do my sales. Well, and I think I think there's some science behind this too, Brandon. If, if, and, and I'm not a psychologist. I don't play one on TV and I didn't say the holiday in last night. You but, sure? Because you no. look well rested. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, if you look at the upper age echelon of millennials, right? You know, we're talking people who are, who are now, as of today, like 38, 39, right in that area, right? For millennial ages. I think millennial, the, the last year the millennials were born was 1977 or something like that. Or the first year the millennials were born was 1977. Um, somewhere around in there, I can't remember. Um, or maybe it was 81, whichever way that goes. However, anyway, point of the matter is, is that, you know, those are folks who are, who are, you know, if not, if they're not managers now, they will be managers in the near future. There will probably be some directors that are in there, you know, either even it's at small to medium businesses or even at some Fortune 100 companies. And if you're talking to those directors and you're talking to millennials, you really need to understand your audience. Those are people who care about, you know, causes more than they do anything else. They care about relationships. They, they want to build a network. They want to be incredibly informed. They want to have information at their fingertips. Um, and if you're just trying to think of everything as a transactional thing, you're not even speaking the language of the folks that you're going to sell to. And I think one of the I, I think I'll follow on with that with one of the points that I wasn't going to make. Until it just hit me now is one of the things that if you look at a Fortune 100 company where you've got a CISO organization and then you've got a bunch of directors that report to the CISO, there's this common misconception on the sales force that I have to talk to the CISO. Like if I don't talk to the CISO, then I'm not going to make my sale. Um, and I want to tell everybody who's listening that that's 100% wrong, at least from every CISO that I've ever worked for, every CISO that I've ever consulted with, every CISO that I've ever you know just had as a friend. They look to their directors. They look to their direct reports to make those decisions. And if you're bypassing those direct reports and trying to just get to that CISO, just so you can tell your sales director, sales manager, whatever the case is, you know that you talk to the CISO, you're you're shitting on everybody that's in that direct report tier, and and they're less likely to buy from you. And and if you're not coupling that mentality with the fact that you're dealing with millennials and they've got a completely different way of dealing with people in society. I think that's a, a set of strategies that people are not really paying a whole lot of attention to. No, it's true. And I think it, you make them your, your colleagues and your partners in that process, right? Because like you said, if you can provide them value, and again, I want to really kind of hit this home. Don't try to utilize them and use them as tools. They're people. Right, connect with them, build up relationships and, and stuff that you're really interested in with them. And then yeah, they're going to be your champions and they're going to be the people that are going to promote you and say, look, and then, you know, do something for them. Don't make it kind of transactional. Oh, I got past you. I'm going to go to the CISO. They signed off on it and then it's transactional. I move on. No, like thank them. Like if it's John Doe from Company X and they really helped you and they helped you kind of work through that process 
answered questions for you, kind of understand the procurement process, the deployment, you know, everything, all that. And they really helped you through that. And they got you to that point. Thank them, like do something nice for them and say, look, you know, I really appreciate all the help you've done, you know, and, and be authentic, not say, oh, you know, I appreciate, do you have another deal going on? Do you have another opportunity? Right, right. right. Talk like, about the next thing you have going on. Yeah. Like really be authentic about, you know, appreciate the value that they provide and, and their expertise, their time, their knowledge that they provide to you. Like really do that. I think that's essential to the value of the relationship. And I think that's missed right now in the transactional sales. It's we're done with that and let's move on to the next thing. Very much so. Very much so. Or, or when you get that PO and we do finally close that sale and then I don't hear from you again until six months until there's like a renewal or you know, you know, something like that. I think that, that that's kind of the other thing that, that really just kind of indicates that this was just a transactional conversation. Yeah, you didn't really care about me. You wanted to kind of get your deal. You had to meet a quota, you know, and that was it, right? So I think it's so important for sales guys and just business people, let's kind of put that, to have that relationship. To know that you're building up friendships. And that's where I, I, I kind of, uh, I was studying a Tony Robbins. Yeah. Right? And he was saying one of the things that you want to do is you want to have business friendships. You want to have people that are your friends in business. Right. And then, yeah, you might have, they might even become outside friends that you guys are close. You golf, you, you travel, you do whatever with. Yeah. But that's the goal because, again, it's the relationship. It's not just uh, business to business kind of handshaking. Right. And I think, you know, that mentality used to be the kind of the old, actually, you know, I was going to say it must be old school, but I know uh, a friend of mine, his dad, I think was in sales for like 40 or 50 years. And it was really interesting to hear how he did sales. He used to have this baker box with these um, cue cards. They'd have everything written down, their family, their kids' names, their ages, the university and all that. And he treated, and I was thinking that, oh, it wasn't the old way, but I now remember him. He cared about everyone. And before he would go into a meeting, he'd pull that card. Yep. He'd go and review it. He would know the universities are going, the schools, what's the kids' names, what their favorite colors are, what's the pets, like everything. He'd go in, have that meeting. If anything updated, he'd rewrite another cue card with all the information, put it back in his alphabetized box, and then do that. And I think that's such a lost skill right now. It really is. It really is. And, and you call it old school. I, I think it's. I think it's a mix of old school versus just knowing your audience, right? That old school getting to know people. You know, just know your know your freaking audience. Like, just, right. You know, be personable. Care. Care exactly. Right. Like, you know, just realize that you know we all you know there's there's enough money for all of us to make in cybersecurity. you're going to get your cut right where right? we're in the negative unemployment rate you know there's there's you know there's more than enough opportunities for you to make your your 15 seconds of fame and make your commission it, it's more important for you to treat everybody else like a human right and i think it's it comes down to and i i comment about this i have a group that i I do negotiations with and kind of negotiate and training. It's comes down to emotional intelligence. It's having that emotional, you know, internal review of yourself and the people that you're connecting with to be emotionally connected with them, not just transaction. It's not lo- a logical transaction or analytical or, or financial. It's that emotional, you know, engagement that you really care. Uh, hey, Sugar Scale Life, how's, you, how's it going? I just had it. Uh, we're just right now talking about sales and business. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. Uh, Neil's an expert. 
an expert expert when it comes to business and cybersecurity. So you have you have any questions, throw some questions out. Neil's more than happy to answer. Is your uh, is your restream bot not working? Because that one didn't come across on on Twitch, it doesn't look like. Uh it's coming across my restream. They're on YouTube. Uh okay. Yeah, for some reason I didn't see that one show up in Twitch chat. Yeah, the, the uh uh, Sugar Skill uh, Life is actually one of one of the, my colleagues on YouTube. Oh, welcome to the stream, Sugar. So yeah, so we're just talking a little bit about sales and kind of the process, what's going on, and I think you know, Neil, like I think we kind of helped to kind of solve some issues there, and really. Oh, yeah anything brandon we haven't solved anything i'll get a call tomorrow and nobody will have learned anything <laughs> i mean the, the ones that have watched <laughs> well then that's the problem we've got to get more people to watch this we gotta have this conversation again and, and that's what we're gonna do we're gonna keep going because <laughs> and now neil talk a little bit about your stream before i uh, sugar skill has a question but talk a little bit about your stream and what you cover um sure so uh so, so thanks for that i uh i run a stream called uh, cyber insecurity um it was funny we talked about this uh yesterday when we when we streamed yesterday um I actually had that that name for a book, and I've actually been threatening to write a book for almost ten years now. Um, you know, I, I I need to actually like make good on that book. But the title of the book was going to be Cyber Insecurity, because it's just it's it was one of those things where it's like we always talk about cybersecurity, but we are also insecure in terms of how we implement controls, how we think about cyber, how we even handle this conversation over sales. You know, that I just thought it was it was appropriate for us to have the, the harder conversations about cyber. And that's very much what, uh, what our stream focuses on. We, we stream Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday from uh, seven to 9 PM central standard time. Um, I decided to put, you know, my years of, of connections to work. Um, and so I, I called, called in favors for, you know, literally all of my connections on, on LinkedIn. And we've had some amazing, amazing guests just, you know, in the last 45 days that we've been streaming, um, you know, General Alexander, who is the former director of operations for U.S. Cyber Command. We've had the senior strategist for Anomaly Threat Intelligence. We've had representatives from two of the largest uh, EDR vendors, Carbon Black and CrowdStrike, come on. We've had, you know, even you know at the tactical level, we've had some some first year, you know, incident response analysts. You know, we've had we had an amazing story. This this story, Brandon, continues to touch me, just in the sense of like, you know, this is an incident response analyst who, you know, he's later in life. Right. He hasn't been in cybersecurity his entire career. As a matter of fact, he he did time in the, the army, you know, got discharged out of the army. And then he spent 15 years, Brandon, slinging shingles, you know, doing concrete, doing manual labor stuff before he finally realized that that he needed a change of career. And he motivated himself to go to a community college and get a degree in cybersecurity that ultimately led to him getting, you know, a, a, a job with a Fortune 100 company on their incident response team. And it's just stories like that where we're really trying to bring, you know, not just the technical side of cybersecurity, because I feel like everybody is out there doing that, but more of these, you know, real talk conversations about what's going on in cybersecurity. Yesterday's stream, um, we streamed for, for three hours yesterday, and I talked about my complete and total failures in some of the pen tests, some of the largest pen tests I had ever done. And I helped a lot of you know, folks on stream talk about how did they recover from those pen tests? How do they approach those types of situations? I talked about my my failings doing leading, you know, incidents for Fortune 100 companies and, you know, just generally trying to impart that knowledge upon people and and, and whatnot. And so it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to 
yeah, we talk technical. We get into malware and we get into command and control systems and different things, you know, like that. But it's also a place where we really try to demystify cyber and, and bring everybody together on a common language front. And it's awesome, guys. Anyone that's listening to this right now, check Neil out. Uh, I'll actually, in the show notes, I'll actually have his links to uh, his podcast, his, his, his Twitter. I'll get Neil to send that over after, and we'll, I'll have that so you guys can see it in the description. Now, uh, Sugar Skills asking some questions here. He's got, uh, what's the most popular SIM software on the market? Say I'm a customer and I want to invest in SIM software for my company. What is the best price of entry, uh, entry generally speaking? Ooh, lots, lots to unpack there on that one. Um, so so I, I'm not going to give you the explicit lawyer answer, but it's going to be damn close, and I apologize for that. Right? The, the, the right SIM solution is the one that's, that works for your organization. And we talked a little bit about this on stream last night when we talked about managed SOCs or managed security operations centers, right? If you're a company that's like $1 billion and below and you have no regulated data whatsoever, you know, you don't have any PHI, you don't have any HIPAA, you're not responding to the FDA or FFIC or anybody like that, you know, you could probably pay a third party, you know, insert third party X here. You know, it could be anywhere from a SecureWorks to, you know, a, a, a you know, a, um, gosh, what's a Blue Voyant to Rapid7. Rapid7 to somebody like myself. Um, you know, and, and you'd probably be just as good and you don't you don't have to worry about all of the headaches that come in with your own SIM software. Um, if you actually want to go down the adventure of having your own SIM, um, buckle up, put on your crash helmet, um, you know, open up your wallet, um, because depending on whether you do something cheap like Greylog or an elk stack or something like that, or you go with these guys that are kind of hanging up over my head right here, the Splunk guys. Um, the price is going to vary wildly between what's your cost of hardware, what's your cost of software, what's your people cost to put into it, and how much time are you willing to to get it to work to be effective for your organization? Because those metrics, I, I've built, I've built, you know, four hundred thousand dollars sim solutions, and I've built four million dollars sim solutions, um, and, and really the only difference was, you know, you know, you know, the buyer. Um, deciding what color of paint they wanted on their Ferrari, right? You know, when it, when it came down to it. Yeah, and I think I think one thing uh, for Sugar Skill Life, you have to think about too to add on a little bit what Neil is saying is that are you looking to run a whole team, right? Or, you know, what's the actual goal, the business goal here? Do you just need the sim? That's a, a one conversation. But do you want to actually run a team? That's another conversation, a business, you know, because it was something that we do uh, almost like, weekly we get the conversation where someone asks hey well i want i need a sim for some sort of compliance or some sort of business need and having the conversation of the actual business cost like you said i know on average when i when i'm talking to companies it's anywhere from a million plus right when you took it look at your security analyst running 24 7 plus your, your licensing and your you know you're having your your having that stand up and then having storage for data for your event logs and like you name it once you start to add that on it can become like a million plus just for that alone and that's yeah. a small solution that's not talking if you're a larger organization with more events per second and things like that that you're logging now that like like neil is saying then if you want more bells and whistles right eu aba and all that other stuff you mean now you just kind of just like you neil saying open up your wallet and just keep going keep going keep going and now you have to manage it so 
it's now it's crazy where I know for my company and then we offer like the manage manage uh sock one of the things we get is more mid-sized to even larger organizations that it's not their industry. They don't want to do it. They don't want to run they don't want to run a security operation centers on their own. They need it for compliance or it's a business need and they know they need it and they need someone else to run it for them. So looking at that kind of what your business needs are too will also incorporate into your business plan when you're starting to forecast for this cuz it's it's something like Neil was saying, it's something you really have to think about. Which is which is why I get back to like if you're if you're under a billion dollars, if you're under maybe even five billion dollars, you have no PII, you have no PHI, you have no regulated data, you know, you know, or even if it's minimal, right? Really, really take a hard look if this is something you even want to do. Yeah. Like pay, pay somebody to do this. Well, that's the other thing. Like if it's not your industry, yeah. right? if it's not your industry, and you have maybe have a couple security experts on your on your team, maybe you have a CISO, a CSO maybe even a security director and then a couple analysts and that's all you have on your team. Now you want to build out a SOC. Yeah. You have to really think about that. Like that's, that's a bigger undertaking. And then look at like the companies and this is why I'm talking about is most companies are doing that and are thinking about that. That's not their area. That's not their area of expertise. So now they have to become experts in it. Like one company was telling me the other day, it was, I think it was a law. Uh, someone was telling me about a story about a law office. And they were trying to build out a SOC because they were going to resell SOC services to lawyers. It's like, well, why would you do that? Like, that's not your area of expertise. You're lawyers. Be yeah. experts in lawyers, right? Yeah. You're not going to be security experts as well. Uh, sugar, sugar skill life. Uh, with the growth of cloud, will it erode the general SOC analyst position? No, absolutely not. So why is that? Because I think one of the hardest parts that we're, you know, we're realizing in the industry, and if you look at, if you look at Capital One, and I'm going to, Capital One is going to become the, the 2020 version of Target, right? If, you, if anybody remembers the Target breach from several years ago, because we're, we're getting to see, you know, behind the curtain on, on the, the massive amounts of failing that Capital One has had. Um, there's so much wrong with, with how people are perceiving their cloud implementations. You know, you know, asset discovery in the cloud is a massive thing. Visibility for your security operations team in the cloud is a massive thing. You know, vulnerability discovery, um, you know, penetration testing, anything that you typically would have thought that you needed to do on premise, organizations seems to seem to have completely and totally forgot that they needed to do those things in the cloud. Um, and so I think that that you know until that mentality catches up, you know, I, I think the the role of a security analyst, I think a role of a SOC, you know, or any type of security organization. Things actually exemplified, you know, with all these things that we're seeing in the cloud because people are failing at getting back to what we said earlier, Brandon, you know, the basics. Well, let's add something on to that. Think about this, uh, sugar skill life, the infrastructure costs in the back end to support a SOC. If they can put that stuff in the cloud, their events, their logs, anything like that, now they don't have to manage the hardware. Right, the hardware is actually managed from from their actual contract. If it's Azure, it's Amazon, anything along that line, and upgrades and RAM and all that stuff can be all done through, through your service provider. You're not doing that on prem anymore. You're not doing that local. So you take away from that position and now being in the cloud because they can support you. But you still need, in my opinion, you still need the security analyst to to analyze the locks to make sure the events. Look at remediation. Look at all that. Respond. Right. So. I don't think that position, in my opinion, is going to go away. It's just transitioning the, the actual infrastructure hardware to something that's more easier to manage. I like where you where you actually headed with this, which is probably different than where my mind went when he asked the question. He or she asked the question. 
Um, and and kind of to piggyback on your point, I, I think you know you know a security analyst will always have a role in our organization. What moving to infrastructure in the cloud does for a security operations center potentially is um, ramp up your ability to move from a level one analyst to a level two analyst to a level three analyst a lot quicker um, and get you more into a position to do some of the more advanced threat hunting stuff that, that comes with some of the higher level two, level three, you know, incident analyst type positions. I think that, that, that that's what taking that responsibility of having that, especially if you're in an organization where, you know, you don't, you don't have the, the privilege of having a dedicated engineering and operations team that can maintain your SIM environment and do all your alert tuning and things like that. If you don't have to do that, you can focus on being a better analyst and it'll actually get you a faster track to um, you know, getting out of just you know, being a, a grunt with eyes on glass. True, very true. Now, you made a comment uh, for the companies that have moved to cloud, how poorly, if any security is being implemented, how vulnerable are a lot of these companies becoming uh, jumping into cloud. What do you think, Neil? You, you want me to answer that one first? Sure. I think, I think very. I mean, I think uh, so. So this is not a. This is. I say this not in the sense of like, oh my God, cloud is bad. Cloud is the, the least secure thing out there. You should run away from cloud. I'm actually a huge proponent of moving to cloud. And I think more organizations do need to embrace the cloud, you know, strategy. I think when you look at it from a cost perspective, when you look at it from a, an IT ownership perspective and things like that, I think cloud is an amazing strategy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but with all that being said, I go back to, I think people either forget how to do the basics in the cloud or there aren't enough smart people to help them interpret the controls that we used to have on-prem with what the controls are that they need to do in the cloud. And so as a result, you know, let's use DevOps teams, DevOps teams as an example. They're very used to agile type development, right? Okay, I need to, I need a server, you know, I need to go test out this code, let's go do it. Well, in an on-prem scenario, they got to put in a ticket, it's got to go to IT, IT's got to spin up a VM, IT's got to, you know, then it's got to go over to the, the hosting team, the hosting team installs the OS on it, then the identity team has to provision your account to access that VM. Most DevOps teams own their AWS access, and so they just simply hit that play button on that AMI uh, inside of AWS, and boom, they've got a new instance. No cybersecurity controls that are built into that whatsoever, and that's how you end up with S3 buckets that are exposed to the internet. I think that disparity, that's the problem that we run into in security when it comes to securing the cloud and what most organizations see as a failure. Now, would you, would you say that there's actual... I'm just trying to think of my side. When it comes to configuration and setting up, do you think people don't think of the actual deployment and look at all aspects of it when they're looking at security? It's kind of more the technology's availability, kind of making sure everything's working probably, but then look at hardening even from permissions, uh, contractors, consultants that are, are doing the work and, and disabling their access, you know, leaving, you know, back doors open for administration, uh, Anything along the line? Do you think those are issues too? Uh, cynical, cynical me says that it's um, you know you know DevOps teams have used loopholes in how they interpret the the IT policies to say well those don't apply to me because you know those are for on-prem IT infrastructure, not for cloud infrastructure. You know I, I ran into this with one organization, not necessarily related to cloud, but more related to manufacturing, whereby they had a computer that was running Windows XP. And we said, well, it's out of policy because it's end of life, 
yada, 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 yada. They're like, no, it's not because it's not an IT system. And I was like, what do you mean it's not an IT system? It's <laughs> right. a computer. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 it's an engineering system because it sits on the manufacturing floor. Right. And so you've got folks who are looking for those like semantical loopholes from folks who are less informed to say, well, this isn't an IT system, it's a manufacturing system, and so therefore it doesn't have to adhere to your IT policies. Okay. Well, this is server, this is cloud, and so therefore since it's not on-prem, it's in the cloud, I don't actually have to do your IT policies. And so they just forego literally, you know, gold image standards, they forego identity standards, they forego, you know, you know, firewall standards and things like that in the cloud because semantically it's not an IT system that sits on-prem. So they kind of let it go because they put it under their umbrella, right? Yeah, exactly. So no, exactly. It, it's it's HR's, it's HR system, right? It's finances system, it's manufacturing, it's you know marketing system. Right. right. That, it's not it's not actually hostings in the data center because this exists in AWS, which is owned by the DevOps team, right? Right. Because we run e-commerce, we pay the bill for AWS, and so therefore this infrastructure is ours. No, makes sense. Totally makes sense. Uh, he's asking another question. Uh, first, let me say Sugar Skill Life, you're asking some very good questions. Keep them up. <laughs> Do me a favor. If you have any colleagues that you, you want to be educated on cybersecurity, share this out to them as well. Absolutely. So he's got a question here. Going forward with blue team roles, uh, be permanently remote for a majority of positions, or will it go back to majority in-house like it was pre-COVID? So he's asked me a question before, which is actually great. He's He's asking about the remote workforce now. Because he's yeah. kind of looking for work, and you think he's getting the cybersecurity field. If I correct me if I'm wrong, right? And then what he's asking is, you know, how is it changing now? Like, how is that workforce changing? Are we going? Are we going to be more remote now, or is it something that you know it's going to transition back into, you know, on-prem? You're going to have to be in the office type work. But I think that's cultural. I don't think that that's a. I don't think we can broad sweep that across the cybersecurity community. I think that because um, you can you can actually look at a lot of examples and see where you know. You know, it varies from company to company. Look at Twitter. Twitter, you know, three months into COVID was like, nobody will ever come back to a Twitter office whatsoever. Um, Google, I think today Google has said, we're never going to come back in the office until July or something like that, 2021. Um, you know, but I know people who work for another Fortune 100 company, um, you know, that, that I've done work for in the past, that literally as soon as they released the regulations that allowed certain amounts of folks to come back to work, they had folks who were coming back in the office on a on a limited you know attendance basis. So I think this is a I think this is a cultural thing about the company. I think what what you're finding is that the companies that are mature enough to look at their organization and say you know what that is really an antiquated mentality. The business really did continue to run. Yeah, everything worked out really really well. Okay, I guess we really don't have to go back to mandatory and you know you know you know in office type type roles and scenarios. I think those are the companies that are going to mature into, you know, being more lenient towards their remote workforce. Um, I think you will always have positions that um, dictate some level of face-to-face -face interaction, right? You know, we talked about sales folks earlier. I think sales folks would love to go back to treating clients to dinner, doing lunches with, with their clients, doing dinners and, and doing events and things like that. I know I'd love to go back to going to Black Hat or DEF CON, you know, RSA, things like that. Um, you know, I think that if you look at a CEO or a CFO and a CIO and a CISO, you know, some of those C-level positions at some of these Fortune 100 companies, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of benefit to having those in-person meetings at that very, very highest level of organizations. 
Um, do I think it needs to be there all the time? And do I think it needs to be mandatory? No, but I think that there's a lot of opportunities where in-person meetings do actually benefit the interaction between two individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think overall, the choice of whether an organization is going to, you know, have a high predominance for remote work versus, you know, on-premise work, I think that's going to vary culture to culture. And I think that what, what you should do now is if you're, if you're looking for a job, you should make it part of your requirement as to whether you're going to accept a job, you know, whether it's remote or, or on-premise. And that's, you know, if you're marketable and you got to remember, I tell this to people all the time, we're in a negative unemployment rate in cybersecurity. And so the ball is actually literally in your court to make the demands of whatever it is that you want to make demands for. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't want to go into the office, make that part of your work. You're just like, sorry, I'm just not coming into the office. And they're like, well, sorry, we have a mandatory in-office workforce. You'd be like, cool, this isn't the company for me because your culture is obviously 100 years old and I don't want to work for a company with a 100-year-old culture. <laughs> just throw that right out there, huh? Throw that right out there. I mean, look, I mean, I tell people all the time, I do, I do career coaching for folks. Um, you know, you know, as well. And I tell them, like, look, if you, you know, you have to learn to read the job market the same way that you would learn to read the stock market, right? You know, when something is in demand, right, you know that the price of it is going to go up, you know, that they're going to be able to ask for whatever it is they want to. And so yeah, I absolutely think that if you're in the market for a job, and you want to work remote, and you to go to that company, and they're like, sorry, we mandate, we mandate that everybody has to come inside and sit inside our stock, you're like, cool, you know, you know, hundred years ago called and they want their, their culture of working back, but you can count me out of it. Have a nice life. There's a hundred and one other jobs out there for you to apply for. Right. And I agree with that. And I think the one thing you have to look at too, is like you said, and I agree with you is you have to look at the company that you want to work for. Right. And you'll know right now where they sit. Cause most companies are public about what they're doing. What's their COVID-19 strategy. What's their strategy going forward about people working from home. Majority companies are letting, are, are, are advertising or at least public about what their their processes and what they're doing and then you just you'll know like you'll know if that's the company you want to apply for now i know uh sugar skill was talking about career and going forward he is asking and i'm going to answer this before you answer this neil a little bit uh if you could start your, your cyber career over in 2020 what search or education would you go for and what career path would uh, would he take the same or something different? Now, Sugar Skill Live, what career do you want to get into first and foremost? Because you're, that's just Pandora's box. That's just opening up a thing like, where do you want to go, right? You're asking Neil this, and Neil's going to turn around and say, well, there's so many ways you can go in your cybersecurity career. What do you want to do? But specific to your career, Neil, and what you've gone into, what would you do different? Um. I think what, what's different for me from a career perspective, right, is um, I did I never thought I would – honestly, I never thought I'd be where I am right now. When, when I got out of the – so I, I spent for, – for those who, who don't know, I spent 10 years in the Air Force um, doing offensive cyber with the, with the United States Air Force and the National Security Agency and, and whatnot. Before that, I was hacking – and I was doing cybersecurity work, but it was never a career field. This was mid-90s, early 2000s, um, mid-2000s, and, and, and never was it ever spoken that that would ever be a career. And so when I was doing my work for the United States Air Force um, and, and, and doing you know, that type of, of offensive cyber with the United States Air Force, and I went to go get out of the Air Force, and it was like, oh, there's a career for pen testing and red teaming? I was, I was, I was literally floored. I was like, holy cow, you mean I could actually go and get paid by a company to hack into that company or other companies in the case of me going to work for PwC and things like that and actually tell these companies how I hacked into them 
you know, write a report on that and, and, and do things like that. I, I, I would never have been able to predict that, that that ever would have been an option for me at any point in time in my career. And so I don't know that I would change anything mm-hmm. um, because because I landed exactly where I wanted to land. And it was by sheer and total accident. I think what what people in 2020 have that I didn't have now is they actually, you know, they know the choice that they want to make. They can say, I want to go do instant response. I want to go do threat hunting. I want to go do GRC. I want to go do pen testing. And you can literally stand there at the crossroads and you can pick whatever book you want to off the shelf and you can definitively make that path. I'm actually more jealous of the folks who are graduating now than me back then because, you know, I got stupid lucky. And I make no qualm about that whatsoever. And I count my lucky stars every day that I got as lucky as I did. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, that's why I choose to give back to the community a hundredfold is because, you know, you know, because of that luck. I think everybody who graduates today, I think they have got the best choice in the world. And I actually wish I was part of this generation right now because you have an opportunity to literally start 15 years ahead of where I started because you can make a choice today to pursue a career path. And, and there's a million and one places for you to go. There's a million and one places for you to look for information. There's a million and one examples for you to see what the right thing to do, what the wrong thing to do is, how to get into that career field. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm envious of, of the generation that we've got now. Yeah. Are you, I think what happens, I think I appreciate and I value both sides because the older cybersecurity guys had to know everything. <laughs> right? They had to. They had to know networking. They had to know infrastructure. They had to know policies and procedures. They had to know governance. They had to know all the stuff because they were it. They were the guy. And a lot of times it was the IT guy that had to know the cybersecurity. It wasn't like what before or what we have now is there's individual cybersecurity people. There's one for governance. There's one for, you know, SOC and pen testing. There's one for this. There's one for infrastructure. There's one for cloud. There wasn't that division where it was the guy had to be a master of all trades, right? He had to know. Each and every area. I, 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 I value that opinion, Brandon, and I really do. And I and I and I see where you're coming from with that. But if I if I look at if I look at a dude or a dudette or you know whoever that's coming out of college, you know when you and I were coming out of college, right? When when it was you know you know you could either be a network engineer or you could go work help desk. You know you know there there wasn't a whole lot of choices. Right. The road is is infinitely forked now for cybersecurity folks that are coming out of college. That's what I'm jealous of. I mean, right. they can really go anywhere they want to. They can, and I mean, I think it's all careers. Like, I'm just, I'm just opened up to the whole kind of aspect of it. Right now, because of entrepreneurship and everything, I mean, the sky's the limit. What you can do now, specifically about cybersecurity, no doubt about it. I mean, you can make, you can go into a career path. Or you can make a company about something that's specific to cybersecurity that could be now the next, you know, breaking thing, you know, disruptor in the industry. So, like you said, the sky's the limits right now because there's so much out there. You got even like what we're talking about, like code review. You've got IoT, you know, AI, machine learning, and machine learning, I encoding. I mean, that sky's the limits there, right? Who knows where that's gonna go, right? It just it's wherever your mind can think at this point. It really is like I, I think I think if you're if you're graduating now if you're if you're looking to get into cybersecurity right now like you shouldn't be asking me what you should do like you should you should be like what interests you right what 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 excites you what gets you out of bed in the morning um, you know what what makes you want to go do cybersecurity and you should literally pull on that thread and that's where you should go because like my path 
vastly different. And I, I, I was blind for almost 15 years in this career until I came out the other side and was like, holy shit, this is a real thing. Right. So sugar scale life, I, I know you've kind of gotten quiet. What, what career path do you want to take? Right, what are you interested in? Let's start with there and see if Neil can kind of give you a little bit of guidance, even some certifications. Because, you know, when it comes to pen testing, so that area, you know, in blue team, red team, let's talk specifically about red team. Is there a certification that you're like, if you're going to go red team pen testing, that's the certification to start out with? What would no, that be? No, and, 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 and I want to, you know, again, just kind of tell her, you know, let everybody know kind of where I come from in this, right, is, is I was a SANS instructor for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're familiar with the SANS Institute, um, I, I built the, the, you know, not personally and single-handedly, but I was with the team that built the first functional training unit for the United States Air Force for all of cyber. Um, I've been a combat instructor. You know, I've talked at conferences. You know, I've, I've done a ton of instructing my entire life. I'm certified out the wazoo. And when you look at my LinkedIn, you'll see almost no record of those certifications whatsoever because I've come to realize that, that you know, you should never chase certs. And that's kind of like a line that I use everywhere is you should never chase certs. I think um, cynical me is certs are the most useless thing in the world. Pragmatic me is like I know that they get you in the foot of the door with some of the HR folks. Um, you know, and, and so I, I think that the cert conversation with where we're at in cybersecurity is you know, which certs help you pass the HR test, you know, to do what it is that you've got to do to get into the HR door. Um, but I think, I think what, from my conversations with HR leaders, from my conversations with my peers in the cybersecurity industry, you know, from leading red teams and blue teams, you know, when I look at a resume, if I've got a resume of a person who's got massive amounts of, of self-learned, massive amounts of, of self-education, you know, you, you've done these videos, you've done these labs, you've practiced these CTFs, you're part of these bug bounty programs if you're on the red side, right? You've got, you could talk me through the home lab that you've set up in AWS or in your own ESXi environment. Um, and and you, can, you can talk me through the concepts of either red or blue based on what you self-learned I'd look, I'd look at that over, you know, 9,000 certifications all day long, all day long. I, I could care less about certifications. See, and I think that's a hard, hard thing to say. Like, and I agree with you, the technical knowledge and everything that you have has to be there, has to be there. But I mean, these guys are applying of one of hundreds, one of 200 resumes that are going in these piles, you know, if they're, you know, as, you, as you know, with the HR, they're looking for OSCP, CEH kind of right. these ones to kind of get them into the door to right. get the interview. Now, That's don't right. get me wrong. What you're saying with that depth of knowledge, that gets you past the the actual manager, right, to the next opportunity where there's an actual opportunity. But to get the HR to pick you out of that pile to be shortlisted. It, That's, why I said, That's why I say the, the conversation that you really want to ask yourself is, what are the HR certs that I need? Right. right? What are the certs that I need to get past HR? what are not the certs that I need to get into this industry? And I think that those are two vastly different conversations. But what right? about like OSCP? Like, and I'm going to use that as an example, because I know the difference between CEH is more theoretical knowledge, right? There's not much applied where OSCP is literally you're, you're doing it, you know, you know, capture the flag for what, 24 hours. And then you have to do a report. So I've taken two OSCPs. I've done pen testing with Backtrack and pen testing with Cali. I've taken multiple different versions of CEH, um, as well as, you know, all the SAMS pen testing courses. Yeah. You know, CEH, um, you know, is definitely the laughing stock in our industry, but it's also the most recognized on HR, right? 
And so when you play the HR game, you really have to ask yourself, right, is, you know, if you're going to play the HR game, you almost do have to look at a CEH and be like, okay, maybe I should really go knock out a CEH because, you know, an HR person that looks at your resume and sees certified ethical hacker, when they're looking for an ethical hacker position, that's an instant one for one for an HR person. But, you know, if you talk to myself and be like, hey, Neil, I've got my CEH, I'm going to be like, cool, did you go to exam collection like 99% of the rest of the, the, the people out there and get all of your answers from exam collection before you took it? Because it's, it's that useless from like a practicality perspective. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of it, you know, OSCP is pretty much 90% hands-on. The, the exam is 24 hours. It's got a very, very high attrition rate, almost 80% attrition rate on it. Um, you know, and you do have to do the, the test and, and um, you know, do the report afterwards. You know, but at the same time, I can tell you from the two that I've taken, you know, only about 50% of what you actually learn uh, in OSCP is actually usable on, you know, the majority of the pen tests you'll actually ever do. Um, you know, they teach you buffer overflow exploits, and, and I've done tons of buffer overflow exploits in my own time. I've, I've written my own exploit code. You know, I've, I've taken advanced exploitation courses and learned about, you know, ROP chains and use after three vulnerabilities and things like that. I have one zero data to my, to my name from, from, from several, several years ago. But in every pen test and the thousands of pen tests that I've ever done um, since getting out of the military, I've never actually ever used that skill on a pen test whatsoever. Um, you know, and even in the military, before I took OSCP, um, you know, the agency has got an entire team of really, really smart folks that are off on the right-hand side that are basically doing all of that stuff for you. And you as an operator never have to even touch, you know, that, that skill set whatsoever mm-hmm. in, in doing any of the, the types of offensive operations roles. And so it's such a narrow, narrow focus um, that, yeah, it's fun and, yeah, it gets you some good skills, but, you know, you're not really, really, really going to use it. And then you're also forgetting the slew of other certifications that are out there that um, are trying to clamor for those top spots. eLearn Security, right, which is now a company of INE, which, you know, typically if you've ever heard of like, you know, um, not New Horizons, but, you know, one of the other IT vendors, you know, that are out there that, that does like Cisco and Microsoft trainings, right? Pentester Academy, you know, Security Ninja. Um, you know, there's tons of these other companies out there that are all trying to, you know, upset you know, the status quo between SANS and, and OFSAC and CEH because they all recognize that there's such a gap between CEH and OSCP mm-hmm. that we don't have enough people filling that gap with, you know, if I taught you something today that you could turn around and use on a pen test tomorrow, none of these certs that we just covered would teach you that. So where are they supposed to learn that? Is that just real world studying, kind of getting out there, capture the flags, working with teams and kind of doing that? Yep. yep. Oh. It's coming from the community. It's coming from those hands-on. It's coming from, you know, one of the easiest things that I tell people to do is, um, you know, when you follow some of these folks on Twitter, right, or, or you know, you're mostly Twitter most of the time, um, you know, I'll take, a, you know, BC Security out of, um, um, you know, out of the West Coast. Right. They took over Empire, which was like one of the premier um, you know, post-exploitation frameworks that we've had in the pen testing industry. Mm-hmm. They took it over after the guys at Spectre Ops had, had you know, decided they weren't going to maintain the code anymore and, and they were just going to let it go. And um, you know, if you hadn't just been following that as an industry, then you would think that something like, um, like the Empire framework was now completely useless when actually it's flourishing under somebody else's development code. 
And when you see what it is that they're doing, you know, what you have to have that fire in your belly for is to be able to say, well, I want to actually learn how to do that. And I actually want to, to use this framework, but I'm not a pen tester. I'm not going to go to work on Monday and start doing pen testing work. I don't even have a capture flag that I'm going to do this weekend. It's going to help me learn that type of skill. You have to take that initiative to stand up that environment yourself and build it and learn how to use that software. Um, you know, so that, that so that you can say, yeah, I now know how to use the Empire Post Exploitation Framework. And if you were sitting across from me from the from a resume perspective or from an interview perspective, and I saw that you had Empire on your resume, I'd be like, okay, cool, you use Empire. What do you think about having PowerShell inside of an environment? Can you talk to that? Okay, tell me what you've done with with Empire. Have you loaded, you know, the responder module so that you could do LLM and R poisoning? Oh, you have. Can you tell me what LLM and R poisoning is and how that that works in a network? And that right there leads us into a conversation that you'll never learn between CEH, OSCP, and SANS. And that's, that's 100 times more useful um, you know, when you actually do your day-to-day -day job than anything you'll learn in any of those other three courses. So I want to check into Sugar Scale of Life because, I mean, we just downloaded a whole bunch. He, he just drank from the fire hose, right? I, I, tried to, I tried to temper that one a little bit. <laughs> so – do you have any questions, sugar, uh, sugar skill life after all that, after kind of you learned, you know, what Neil's kind of worked through his history, his background, as well as kind of the information and certification? Did that answer your question? Cause I know your goal was, um, a goal is to become a sock analyst and, and soak up the information and I want to be on a red team. So, I mean, you gave, and Neil, and kind of in my context here, you gave a lot of great information of kind of building up those skill sets, building up that technical knowledge, being able to do that, even looking at kind of, how to interview, right? And how to answer questions in the interview process. Because if you have that technical side, that's going to be something like someone like yourself as a, you know, someone as a CISO, someone as, you know, in that level is doing the interview. You're going to ask those questions that sugar skill life, as long as you were listening, those are the things you're going to have to be answered. So working with a team, I think that's going to provide the most value. Right. Absolutely. So, so yeah. Like, like my motto is, is keep learning. Like, like that's, you know, if you're, if you're sitting in a sock analyst role and you're, you're looking, you're working level one sock, you know, don't think that your world just exists by looking at those alerts on a day in and day out basis. Um, you know, you know, challenge, challenge the status quo, challenge what it is that you're doing day in and day out. Ask the questions that, you know, you know, you may not think, or your peers may not think that you should ask, you know, be, be that person that's disrupting, disrupting the status quo. That's the biggest advice that I would give you and never stop learning. Yeah, and he's saying that right now. Haha, ha, yes. Uh, I was, I used Google as my friend and tw uh, YouTube, Twitter, trying to do, trying to be a sponge and learn as much as possible. Join teams. That's another thing. Yeah. Join, join some hacker teams, some people that are colleagues, things like that. Uh, you're going to learn the most out of a team because someone's going to be stronger at one area than you are. And you guys are going to piggyback each other. I've seen that with, um, uh, DEFCON 416 is the Toronto kind of, you know, hacking community here and you watch them, how they collaborate across each other, right? One might be good at wireless. One might be good at infrastructure. One might be good at this. And then they just learn from each other. One of the things that I'll say is like, like if you don't have a Twitter, get a Twitter. Number one, number two, um, if you are on Twitter, um, hopefully you're using it like an RSS feed, follow me on Twitter um, and go look at all of the followers that I have. And you'll see that 90% of it is, is infosec related and just start following the same people that I follow do it with Brandon, do it with everybody that you follow from the followers that you follow on us and just start following us, but just treat it like a giant RSS feed and, and consume, you know, all that data. Like it was just a giant RSS feed. 
Yeah, because you can create, and I'm just looking at my Twitter right now, you can create lists. And I know I have a cybersecurity list where I have like mentors and things like that, that I've just kind of put them in that list. And then I just kind of check up what they're doing, what's going on in the industry. So do the same thing. I mean, that's, that's a great tip. Now we're coming up. I think we've been on the stream trying to see right now. Uh, I think it's about, about close to two hours now. Hour 44. Yeah. Close to two hours. Now, was there anything else you wanted to add, Neil? I got to, I got to use a little hacker's room or we're going to take a commercial break. (laughs) Uh, Well, I was, I was going to end it. You know, we, we, we downloaded a lot of information for people. So I was just going to end at that point because, and, and just to let you know, Neil, uh, being respectful, knowing that it's not an easy journey and keep grinding and learning. Yeah. Just keep doing it. And then like ask people that got questions, jump on the stream. We're always here. Like, you know, I'm going to have, uh, Neil, uh, just, just quick. When's your streams Monday, Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday from uh, seven to nine central standard time in the U S. So on my, my streams now are going to be on Mondays. I'm going to start Mondays at uh, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, which is going to be kind of a lunchtime talk and, and just be able to chat about what's going on in the industry, what's going on in the news. So subscribe to both of us, kind of follow up. Make sure you ask a lot of questions as you're going through because this is an industry you never stop learning. Absolutely. Awesome, Neil. Um, thank you so much for being on here. I'm going to have you on again just to let you know. I hope so. Hopefully... Hopefully I didn't take your ratings too bad, but no, you can always count on me. With pleasure. Well, I mean, our pretty faces, I mean, that's all that counts. I know, right? I know. <laughs> it's the only thing we got going for us. It is. The knowledge, the expertise, everything we're talking about is probably all just crap, right? It's just the, it's just the look. It's just us. I've, it's my, I've got, it's I've, Superman. I've, I've got notes in front of me like, God, I hope I hit everything that I was supposed to hit. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's good, Neil. Like, I really appreciate you being on here and providing value. I mean, uh, one thing I respect about you is just your experience, your knowledge, and, and everything you're doing in the industry. So, having you part of you know a collaborative effort for me is just important. And be able to anyone that's you know listening to this, make sure you check out Neil again. I'm gonna have everything like from his URLs in the description. Check him out. Check out his, his stream. If you're deep into like cybersecurity on the technical side. I highly recommend you jump onto one of his streams and just kind of go along with it because I know I watch one of his streams and just, you know, the information that you provide and the, the value that people have and the career advice too is so, so important, especially when people are trying to break in the industry or just trying to figure out where they're going. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate it. I, you know, I, thanks for having me on the stream. You did a really good job and, and, and I'm looking forward to, to, to many, many more of these. And, uh, you know, I just I want to see I want to see our industry grow and I want to see everybody get the best the best that they can out of it. Yeah, same here. And I think that's one of the things that's important for me is providing value, right? Just kind of talking about it, having those conversations that are need to be out there, right? And keep going. So thank you so much, Neil. Again, guys, uh, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel as well as my podcast. You can go to dailycyber.ca and you can check out all the links. Everything's there. We've got new branding. Everything's happening now. Uh, you're going to be able to listen to this on iTunes as well as uh, right now it's going to be on YouTube, Facebook. I'm working on getting on LinkedIn. Damn you, LinkedIn. Give me give me access. All right, let me do the live stream there. I'm going to be posting. I just did it actually as we were talking, the share there on Twitter as well on LinkedIn just to let everyone know we're live. But we're going to go work on there. So, Neil, thank you so much. Always, Brandon. Thank you very much. Thank you, dear viewers. Uh, so give me a second, guys. Uh, do, do, do. So, guys, I want to thank you so much for, for listening to the new uh, stream and everything that's going on. Again, don't forget to subscribe. I'm going to have Neil's information on the bottom there. Uh, I really appreciate it. The podcast now is going to be live, so you guys can come out on Mondays at 12 p.m. so you're able to listen to it. So just remember, software is hackable, being connected is vulnerable. I'll see you next Daily Cyber.